Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt the Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message. to experience radical transformation in the Lord. All right, so get to it. What, what did the Lord say? The Lord said, all right, take up your cross daily and follow me. Are we going to change? Are we ready to conform to the image of our Messiah. As I go through this message today, it was really convicting to, to write it, to do the study. But we have everything we need in our Lord. The Lord, when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. And he didn't say it is finished later, it is finished now. We can overcome the enemy now and live in the fullness of life. So just know that if you're a believer here today, you have that hope. So today you have a choice to become more like the world or to be conformed into the image of Yeshua, the risen Messiah. And I do believe that he rose from the dead in the miraculous power of the Spirit. In Yeshua, there is freedom to live in the newness of life and to have an abundant life. An abundant life. If you feel like you're just going through the motions, that's not what the Lord wants for you. He wants you to experience abundance. In John 10, 7 through 10, Yeshua declared, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I'm glad it didn't end there. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Paul attempts to describe this fullness of life and the glory of our Lord in 2 Corinthians 3 by comparing it to the transitory glory that shone from Moses. The glory shone so brightly that the Israelites couldn't even bear to look upon it, and they covered his face with a veil. We don't want to cover our face with a veil. We don't want to hide from the glory of the Lord either physically from our sight or hide from it spiritually by guarding our hearts, putting strongholds around our hearts. This veil blinds the world to this day, but believers in Yeshua are given divine revelation. In 2 Corinthians 3, 15 through 17, we read, Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. 
But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, and he said anyone, so if you don't know the Lord here today, you can turn and begin to trust in him. Anyone can come and turn to the Lord. And if you do, when you do, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So to clarify, you here today, if you believe, have inherited an unprecedented life, the continual possibility to live in the fullness of life promised by our Lord. That possibility is only limited by our decision your decision and my decision, moment by moment and day to day, to walk either by the Spirit or by the flesh, either to embrace freedom from the world or be subjected to those limitations imposed by our human understanding. Let's pray to the Lord that we have divine understanding, heavenly understanding, and to move away from that earthly, carnal understanding that limits our ability to serve. So to crucify ourselves with the Messiah, we voluntarily lay down our human understanding and embrace the truth revealed through Scripture and the Ruach HaKodesh, or the Holy Spirit. Yeshua summarized true spiritual understanding in Mark 12, 28 through 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Yeshua had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Uh, the most important one, answered Yeshua, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And then the man replied, Well said, teacher. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Yeshua saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So the greatest commandment and I want you to think about this, take note of this. And by extension, our priorities for our lives are to love God, that's the first priority, and to love each other, especially fellow believers. And this love forms the foundation of our relationships as we are other-focused instead of self-focused. When we are other-focused, we build up relationships, and when we are self-focused, we tear down relationships. When it's about me, the relationship gets harmed and cut apart. But when we're other-focused and we're focusing on the needs of others and on the commands of our Lord, we build up a strong foundation for our relationships. And even the secular world has has understood and studied and confirmed Yeshua's true assertion that our priorities should be other-focused. 
So the definition of morality, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is a particular system of values and principles of conduct, especially when held by a spe specified person or society. Even the secular world appears to have embraced other focused morality. And to be clear, what I, when I was studying, all morality is in our relationship with others. There is no morality within oneself, but only in a communal context, and in our case, with our relationship with God from that spiritual context. In Owen and Charrington's book, Moral Leadership and Ethical Decision-Making, they outline 10 prominent moral issues that seem universal in nature. And, and as I go through these 10 items, you're going to hear several themes that, that are in the scriptures. And this is what secular study has come to. The first one is lying. And by lying, I understood it to be distorting the truth. So you can lie by active deceit, or by misleading others. Stealing, or taking what belongs to others. Fraud and deceit, or misrepresenting oneself. Taking unfair advantage of others. For example, like retailers price gouging after a natural disaster. Committing personal decadence. And I, and I, I think I've been guilty of this at times myself, this pers personal decadence. And per, that is when you perform under your ability, when you could perform at a higher standard or a higher level, and you choose to slack off, or performing below one's ability at a job, spiritually with the Lord, and serving others, loving your spouse, personal decadence. Six is taking bribes or compromising fairness when it benefits oneself. Seven is inappropriately hiding and divulging information, and that is to violate the trust of others. Eight is permitting organizational abuse or denying individual protections from organized entities, and that would be like having an oppressive government. That seems to be universal in nature. Nine is balancing ethical dilemmas or having to choose priorities of one group over another. And ten is condoning unethical behavior through cooperation with the act. And listen to this. That also includes when you hide the act or when you refuse to call out the bad behavior. If we're to live in a moral society where we love each other and lift each other up, we have to be willing to step out of our comfort zone when necessary and call each other out. So all of Owen and Charrington's 10 principles relate to how we act in relationship with others. So it's not just in the scripture. It wasn't just God's idea. Apparently science has confirmed also, psychology has confirmed also, that we are to have other-focused morality. So we as believers have a higher calling to act, to act beyond mere fairness and regard for others, but we're to also act in love for one another. In 1 Corinthians 13, we are called to have proper motivation in serving each other in love. And I want to look specifically at the end of the chapter where Paul states in verses 12 and 13. And listen to this. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. 
Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So we see in verse 12 that we are supposed to use the love of our Messiah within ourselves and share that with the world. Let me repeat that again. We see in verse 12 that we are supposed to see the love of Messiah within ourselves. See that love in yourself. You are becoming more like Messiah. And then you're supposed to share that with the world. To the extent that we see and experience Yeshua in our lives, we are able to give that measure to others. The consequences of how we view ourselves is that we treat others in accordance with that interpretation, whether it's good or bad. That is, every false or limiting belief we hold about ourselves or about our Lord is evident in how we treat each other. We therefore must actively work to improve our self-image, and we do that by increasing in godliness. In 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11, Peter says that God's power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And he didn't say just some of the things. He said everything we need for life and godliness through our knowing the one who called us to his own glory and goodness. And that is Yeshua the Messiah. By these he has given us valuable and superlatively great promises so that through them you might come to share in God's nature. So we're literally sharing in God's nature and escape the corruption which evil desires have brought into the world. For this very reason, try your hardest to furnish your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with perseverance, perseverance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you have these qualities in abundance, they keep you from being barren and unfruitful in knowledge of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Indeed, whoever lacks them is blind, so short-sighted that he forgets that his past sins have been washed away. If you believe in him today, your past sins have been washed away. There is nothing that you, could have, you have or could have done that he cannot forgive. You are forgiven from the sacrifice of Yeshua on the cross. Uh, therefore, brothers, try even harder to make your being called and chosen a certainty. For if you keep doing this, you will never stumble. Thus you will be generously supplied with everything you need to enter the eternal kingdom of our Lord and deliverer, Yeshua the Messiah. So to possess these qualities in increasing measure, we commit to living a life of high moral character for others. We don't commit to living a life of high moral character for ourselves. I don't know how, how your life is or how things go internally for you, but if I try to live for myself, I find myself more willing to give in to temptation, more likely to try to sow to the flesh instead of to godliness. But when I'm focused on others, I'm willing to try harder. I'm willing to work harder. I'm willing to pray, lay down, and sacrifice those parts of myself that would cause the others to suffer. 
I think about my wife. I think about the students at the university where I teach. I have to decide to sacrifice my desires, lay them down and crucify them so I can serve them in the fullness of our Lord. So our behavior, public and private, has a profound impact on our attitudes, values, beliefs, and faith. And here's, here's the, the, the problem, the issue. The issue is that almost everyone feels like they are basically a good person. Most of the time, and, and I think this applies to myself, I don't know about to you, but most of the time, people, we, don't lie, we don't steal, and we don't cheat. But sometimes we do. Sometimes we fail. We make mistakes. To the extent we do bad behaviors, to the extent that we give in to that temptation, we justify that behavior in ourselves and become tolerant of it in others. And this extends to sin and limiting beliefs. To the extent that we sin, we justify the sin and we say it's not really that bad. To the extent that we deny the power of God to influence our lives, we tell the Lord and we prevent him from changing our hearts in that area. Wherever we build that stronghold around, we tell the Lord that you can't change that area. I'm holding on to it. There is hope, however. The opposite is also true. That to the extent that we resist temptation and reach out to God, he will reach out to us. In James 4, 7 through 10, we read, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. When we walk in righteousness, God lifts us up. Our image conforms more with the image of Messiah. And we will see more in ourselves the glory of the Lord and be increasingly equipped to serve others. Not in our own strength, but in the strength of Messiah Yeshua. As our actions, behaviors, and intentions conform more with Yeshua, our perspective, that is, our interpretation of situations, will also become more like Yeshua's. Consider him on the cross. If he had an earthly perspective, he might have considered the cross a failure of God's, God's plan. And that was the perspective of many of the people who witnessed his death. Yeshua could have rightfully been angry with his persecutors and executioners who mocked him. He, however, however had an other-focused perspective and was heaven-minded even in his suffering. He focused on his love for others through forgiveness. We read in Luke 23, 34 that Yeshua said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He also focused on the glorious redemption of mankind. We also read in Hebrews 12, 1 through 11, how Yeshua's perspective helped him to endure the cross and how that same perspective can help us to overcome sin, even to the point of death. We read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, 
Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Yeshua, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten the words of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone who accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So we are to maintain a Yeshua-focused perspective when fighting against sin, even to the point of death. Through Adonai and the power imparted to us by the Ruach, we can endure it. This change of perspective is why it is so critical to walk in righteousness as we perfect our perspective, it is easier to endure increasing levels of persecution. So let me repeat that. As we perfect our perspective, it is easier to endure increasing levels of persecution and physical and emotional trials. If we refuse to take on this new perspective, however, we will lose heart and fall away. Or as the writer of Hebrew puts it, we are not true sons and daughters at all. Instead, we are doers of iniquity, living in hypocrisy. So what stops us from having this perspective? Because if you're anything like me, I would love to have this perspective all the time and to stay firm in it and strong in it. But it seems like so easily I get distracted and fall away from this, this heaven-minded perspective that Yeshua has given us. Unfortunately, there are a lot of things that get in the way. The world gets in the way. Our past beliefs get in the way. Our beliefs that limit the blessings that we can receive from the Lord get in the way, etc. And I will, but I'm going to briefly go over five strategies that that have helped me to cultivate a renewed perspective. And I'm and I'm not there yet, but as I was preparing this message, I was I had to be introspective and look at well, what can I do? What can we do to become more heavenly minded? When, do, when am I firm? What things help me stay in the faith and what things cause me to fall away? So these are five strategies that help us to maintain this, this renewed perspective that the Lord has given us. Strategy number one. 
We give and receive feedback with fellow believers. Strategy number one, we give and receive feedback with fellow believers. Yeshua commands believers to correct one another. In Matthew 18, 15 through 20, he details how we are to correct one another. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And if we truly love one another, we will correct each other. And this is critical, why we really need to correct one another. It's because not everyone who calls themselves a believer will be saved. Not everyone who calls themselves a believer will be saved. This tragic reality is explained by Yeshua himself in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, where Yeshua said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. If we love one another, we will not allow our brother or sister in Messiah to be deceived. We in love correct one another so that we may live in community with each other and with the Lord. And that's not temporary community. That is eternal community. This has eternal consequences for you and me. So strategy number one is to give and receive feedback with fellow believers. Strategy number two, we challenge our limiting beliefs. We as believers profess the unchanging character of our Lord. And if we are to be consistent in believing in his unchanging character, we are called to accept and receive the giftings from the Ruach. In Acts 5, 12 through 16, we read about the outpouring of the gifts of the Spirit in practice. So the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. That's how much they wanted to be healed and believed in the healing power of our Lord. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And I love this word. I was, uh, to, be, to be frank, I was kind of baffled. I didn't remember that it had this word in there. And all of them were healed. Not just some of them. All of them were healed. 
Wow. That's the kind of power I want to experience from the Lord. The ability where people just want to be in, in, in the shadow to be healed. So we as believers in Messiah can in the same manner, in the same manner that the first century messianic community performed signs and wonders through the Ruach, healing the sick and casting out impure spirits. So again, we as believers in Messiah can in the same manner that the first century messianic community performed signs and wonders through the Ruach, we can also we have the ability to heal the sick and to cast out impure spirits. And if we deny that, and I know it's, it's hard, to, hard to talk about because it seems like we don't, we don't want to talk about this or bring it up very often. But if we limit God in that area of our lives, we have to ask, where else are we limiting the Lord in our lives? The Lord performs miracles in, in, in my life. And I believe he performs miracles in your life. Are we seeing them? Are we looking? Are we being encouraged? Or are we saying that was just a coincidence? Or I was lucky? The Lord wants to bless his people. So Paul also confirms and details spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11, where we read. So you can take Paul's word for it and not just mine. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by that one Spirit. And to another miraculous powers. To another prophecy. To another distinguishing between spirits. To another speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit. That same Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit that lives within each believer. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So if we claim to believe but deny the miracles of God, we deny his power in arrogance. And we're telling God how to operate in his world. In his world. In doing so, we are the kind of hypocrites that Paul warns Timothy about in 2 Timothy 3. Those who reject the power of God open the door to Satan and live in depravity. According to Paul, we are to have nothing to do with such people. So if you find yourself doubting in the power of God, read about the countless miracles in scriptures. And I'm going to just tell you a few of them now. So first, every week we talk about the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus 14. And, or when God turned back time. Did you know God turned back time in the Bible? In Isaiah 38. Or the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11. If scripture doesn't suffice, consider some of the most profound modern day miracles. Such as the formation of the nation of Israel on May 14, 1948. Who agrees that was a miracle from God? Or the countless physical healings that have happened in hospitals around the world. And I'm not going to detail any of them here, but if you just do a quick Google search, you can hear about the miracles that Lord, the Lord is doing, the healing that is occurring in hospitals all around the world. All right. 
if modern miracles still don't suffice, consider your testimony and the miracles that God has performed in your life. Every one of us has sinned and fallen away. We all went our own way. But in that testimony, God called us back, and we responded to that call. He chose us, and he loved us. Give thanks to him, Yeshua the Messiah, through prayer, worship, journaling, meditate on the things that God has done for you until the truth of the miracles and the power of the Lord transform from head belief to deep inner faith in your heart. So strategy number two is we challenge our limiting beliefs. We challenge our limiting beliefs. Strategy number three we sow into others what we desire to receive from the Lord. Strategy number three, we sow into others what we desire to receive from the Lord. To the extent we show compassion, love, forgiveness to others, we receive it from the Lord. In the Lord's Prayer, we can even recognize that God limits the amount he forgives us to the extent that we are willing to forgive others. And he does that because he's fair and just. If he forgives us fully, he expects us to forgive fully as we are forgiven. Paul makes the reciprocal nature of sowing and reaping evident in Galatians 6, 7 through 10, where we read, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. So we are to not be deceived, and God just isn't mocked. He cannot be mocked. You can't hide anything from the Lord. So do not be deceived, and that's, that's for us. We don't want to be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. However, whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers." Therefore, study and embrace sowing to the Spirit that you may become increasingly confident in your identity in the Messiah. Reap His truth and extend the hope of His truth to others. So strategy number three is we sow into others what we desire to receive from the Lord. Strategy number four, we build relationships on a foundation of promises and commitments instead of on emotions. We build relationships and form a foundation of promises on a foundation of promises and commitments instead of on emotions. When Constance and I were married, we signed a ketubah that details the promises that we made to each other before God, our family, and our friends. According to the Oxford Dictionary, a promise is a statement that tells someone that you will definitely do or not do something. So this document 
does not tell us to be married and to uphold our promises only when it feels good and convenient to do so. But all the time, we don't walk out our promises by speaking them or having them written on a document or on a contract, but by living them out. Making an ongoing commitment to walk out our promises to others. And in doing that, we deepen our relationships with them. And this is also true with the Lord. As we commit ourselves to following him faithfully, not only in word, but in action, we deepen our relationship with the Lord. And I like in basing this relationships on emotion versus, uh, uh, versus covenant to the parable of the wise and foolish builders. In Matthew 7, 24 through 27, Yeshua said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. In other words, in other words, commit yourself to keeping your word and keeping your promises. And in doing so, it will deepen your relationships with God and your fellow man. I do want to take a moment, though, and speak out against this idea that, that I see in our culture, and I even see sometimes in, in the believing community, that we're supposed to suppress our emotions, not feel, and, and not really accept and believe that God made us in his image and gave us all the things we needed to live in perfection and harmony with him and each other. And that includes our emotions. Okay. So emotions are not wrong, they're not bad, they're not evil, but emotions are inconsistent and volatile. They change. Emotions power actions. They put us into motion. But instead of determining which actions we take through undisciplined emotional reactions, we instead should focus on taking actions that demonstrate self-discipline and help us to keep our commitments and promises to others. A good analogy is to think about a car. The fuel, the gasoline, powers the car, but it doesn't steer it. We wouldn't want to try to steer our car with the gasoline. The steering wheel, on the other hand, steers the car, but it doesn't power it. Can't go anywhere without fuel, even if you have the best steering wheel in the world. This is also how the relationship between commitments and emotions should be. We steer our lives with our commitments and power our lives with our emotions. So strategy four is we build relationships on a foundation of promises and commitments instead of emotions. And then finally, strategy number five. We commit to personal change in order to walk in righteousness. We commit to personal change in order to walk in righteousness. We make a commitment. 
We just talked about that a little bit. We talked about promises versus commitments. We can make a promise saying that we'll do that, saying that we'll change, but when we commit, we walk it out. So discovering the possibility to walk in righteousness is ultimately only something that each believer can do for themselves. It's between them and God. I can't do it for you, and you can't do it for me. According to psychologists, the best predictor of our future behavior is our past behavior. The best predictor of our future behavior is our past behavior. Our actions become habits, and it is common to have ingrained habits that emotionally feel so powerful that we cannot overcome them. However, we cannot both have high ethical standards and continue to live in sin and commit immoral behavior, even if it's hard, even if it's inconvenient. We must commit to change and walking in righteousness. We can, however, so you can do this. We can, however, choose how we act and control our behavior. We can submit that behavior to our Lord. This means that how we behave today, how you act right now today, has a profound impact on your future trajectory. You can choose today to become more like Messiah or more like the world. If you are living an immoral life, recognize the sin, repent from it, and replace the sinful behavior with holy behavior and godly behavior. Don't just stop sinning. If you just focus on stop sinning, it's easy to fall back in with temptation. But instead, replace it with godly behavior. Resolve to change and commit to change. And one of the best ways to do it is by partnering with a fellow believer. Find someone you can trust that you can confide in, that will help walk it out with you. Support each other. Have an accountability partner. As you have an accountability partner and you're walking it out, you get the opportunity. It's not a burden. It's an opportunity to demonstrate to God, your fellow believer, and yourself that you are committed to change by living in righteousness. Walking out the transformed behavior consistently. We furthermore commit to excellence in all areas of life. We understand that the Lord entrusts each believer with opportunity according to his or her ability. Sinning in that which we might consider small areas of life can profoundly impact faithfulness in larger areas. When we slack off at work, when we rage at drivers on the road, when we act callously with our coworkers, when we act callously with our children, when we act callously with our spouses, we demonstrate to God, the other person, and to ourselves that we do not love others. This destroys relationships, and it creates a negative self-image that opens the door to unbelief. Thoughts like, God doesn't love me. Or, God can't use me. Or, yeah, God blesses other people, but he doesn't bless me. By recognizing these negative thought patterns, we can change them through committing to love our neighbor as ourselves and a living a life, giving our all 100% all the time. 
As we improve in our commitments to others and are proven faithful in these smaller areas, the Lord will in turn entrust each believer with increasing responsibility. I didn't, know, I didn't say increasing joy or increasing prosperity necessarily. Sometimes he'll put you through the ringer and give you increasing trials. But he will give you increasing responsibility. So that we can continue to grow more into the image of our Messiah. Who really, in, in human understanding, he had, the, he had the ultimate responsibility. He had the responsibility to redeem mankind. Even to the point of death. Death on a cross. So strategy five, we commit to personal change in order to walk in righteousness. So in conclusion, the decision of each believer whether or not to conform to the image of Messiah impacts not only the body of believers, but also impacts culture and the secular world. So when you choose to live for yourself instead of for the Lord, it doesn't just impact you. It impacts the body here, it impacts your family, and it impacts the culture. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get kind of depressed when I look at the culture, the state of the political realm. And I ask the Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? And I'll be honest, sometimes I, I get the message back. When will someone step up? Who's going to put them on, themselves on the line? When are believers going to stand in the gap for our country? For the future of our children? And it's convicting. So it also impacts the culture in the secular world. Practicing godly living comes from faith in Yeshua. And practical faith leads to productive and effective intervention in the secular world. And we do this through cultural change and involvement, political activism, healing the sick, casting out demons, proclaiming the gospel, raising up disciples, loving fellow brothers and sisters in the faith, and walking out an uncompromising faith-oriented life. When you're asked what you believe, that means you tell them. We be like Peter, and we be bold, and we tell them. We believe in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. We can do these miracles through his name and his power. So although... Although we will face trials and be unsuccessful at times, or we'll think we're unsuccessful at times. You don't know what seed you're sowing. But even if you perceive that you're unsuccessful at times in influencing others, we are called to stand firm. In Yeshua, we are more than conquerors and have been given victory over the world. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you have overcome death and you have victory over sin. That we are no longer slaves to sin, but we can walk in your fullness. The fullness of life you gave us by, when you sacrificed yourself on the cross. Thank you, God, that you did not withhold your only son from us. 
but you gave us the ability to have life and life to the full. You've allowed us to reconcile for us who were once sinners to be reconciled to you, the holy and supreme king of the universe. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Allow us to have transformed hearts, transformed minds, transformed understanding, have new strength in you, and renewed faith. Lord, we have a burning desire to be your hands and feet in this world. Show us the opportunity. Make it clear so that we can step out in an uncompromising fashion, proclaiming the name of the Lord to this world. We pray these things in the name, merit, and power of Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pina Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 1040 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.